Hi, this is Tom Capone. I am the host of Spoilers Alerts, and I'm very happy to have with me today as part of the Life Stories episodes, uh, Linda Harris. It is Tuesday, May 21st, 2019, and we are in the Oceanside Library. So once again, I would like to thank the Oceanside Library for opening its doors to us and allowing members of our community to have these conversations that are part of Life Stories. Linda, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Linda, let me begin by asking you, what is it, what's the first thing that might come to mind if I said, what is it that you want, that, what's the first thing that you want the listening audience to know about you? It sounds like an easy question. It's not, but I think that I am someone who does not get engaged easily very deeply in a lot of things, but once I am, I become insatiable to know why and what and what it's about and what does it mean. And if it's something physical like gardening, uh, which I took up years ago um, because it was my mother's garden and I wanted to continue, um, I got incredibly involved in that, which I thought I would never do. And when I became involved in astrology, I, it was just something I did just briefly, and I just couldn't stop until I, I had to know everything. And that took me, it took me years to learn. And I never, I never became unenthusiastic about it. And and being a mother and with my children, I'm unendingly patient and, and I care for them so much. So when there's something I'm really interested in, I go full forward on it. And when I'm not interested, I'm just, it doesn't exist for me. Mm -hmm. I'm also someone who gives you three strikes and once you're out. That's it. That's it. <laughs> That is definitely it, and that has happened with friends, with family members, because I'm, I bend over backwards so much for everybody that when I see that it's, I'm, it's not working for me anymore, it, it's over. Well, I hope during the course of our time together, I don't uh, get to that point oh, of three no. strikes. Oh, no, because we're going to be talking about me. That's true. This is, this is about you. And already, I love uh, that question, and I love the direction that you took that question in. You really covered a lot in a short amount of time about yourself, and, and perhaps we will hit upon those three things that you, you focused on, astrology, gardening, and parenting. And um, that really does help our listening audience to begin to develop a little bit of a profile of who you are. So if you were to, to take it even further, what else, would, how else can you add to the profile of who Linda Harris is for those who are listening today? Okay, in my soul, I am a dancer. And I can start from the beginning, and I can tell you exactly that story, which I would like to do. So why don't you do that? Okay. At what age? Well, I was born in the summer of 42. And by 1947, I think the first show I went to see as a show was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and it was Peter Pan with Gene Arthur. And I think my mother took me there to see if I could, if my, if my, if I could be engaged enough that I could go maybe somewhere bigger like the ballet. Mm -hmm. And I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. From the, the minute the show began? From the minute the show began, I was enraptured. And then I think the next year we went to see the ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And I was, it was like this magical thing where I never breathed, I don't think, the entire time. And when it was over, because I had been to the movies many times, my mother would take me, and I, sometimes I'd fall asleep. Or, and if, if it was a children like with Margaret O'Brien, I would really be interested. 
but I was used to being able to sit and say, oh, can we stay a little longer? Well, this is where we came in, you know. Can we stay a little? I always wanted to stay longer. And movies are a big passion of mine. Mm -hmm. um, after the ballet was over and we were outside, I said, when can we go back and see it again? And my mother said, it's not like that. <laughs> it's not like that. I said, well, I want to be a ballet dancer. So I went to um, the Brooklyn Music School and I was enrolled in interpretive dancing. At the age of five or you were no, a little bit older at that point? No, I was about seven at that point. Mm -hmm. And then I went to my first ballet class. I think I was seven and a half mm -hmm. or eight. No, I was seven. I was seven because I was in ballet almost a year before we moved to Oceanside. And we moved to Oceanside in 1951. And I was eight years old. Actually, eight and a half. We moved into uh, Vermont Avenue on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day of 1951. We'll come back to. Uh, and the first thing we did was, my mother did, was try to get me into a dancing school, which we did immediately. Here in Oceanside? Or the, or the first one wasn't, it was Rockville okay. Center. Okay. And then uh, Baldwin, and then Oceanside, mm -hmm. and then I stayed with Oceanside. And how long did you, uh, were you part of a dance studio? In Oceanside till I was 17, and then I, I was taking lessons in Manhattan. Uh, in fact, one of my teachers was the same teacher that Liza Minnelli had. Is that so? Yeah, uh. in jazz, Luigi. Mm -hmm. And I had, I was in professional classes, but I would never, ever, ever be a professional dancer because at age 20, when going out dancing to rock and roll, which is a whole other subject, which we're going to talk about, the, the golden age of Long Island live music, rock and roll, um, my knee hurt. Mm -hmm. And I went to my chiropractor, and she said, you have arthritis in your knee. At 20? At 20. Mm -hmm. my, my mother had arthritis. Mm -hmm. my, my knees are terrible. I've mm -hmm. had shots and everything. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to digress. Um, but I took dancing, ballet, and jazz, not tap. I took a little tap, mm -hmm. which helped because I actually taught, when I was 17, I taught for a half a year in one of the studios in Oceanside. Um, that's another story. I, I don't want to go there either. But at the minute that I started to dance, I was released from my parents, which was really important because they were not kind people. And although they gave me dancing lessons, I never heard the end of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, between that and the beach, which is another passion of mine, the beach, oh, not the beach walking on it, the beach swimming in it, mm -hmm. body surfing which I've done up until last year, and hopefully, fingers crossed, I can do it this year. Um, those are the things that took me away from that, that feeling of being held prisoner, which was a very big So feeling. Linda, I'm, I'm surmising you were, you were an only child? Only child. And I always wanted to have a sister. I had cousins, but they didn't live near me, and the one that did was much younger. And what, what about friends from dancing or through dancing? No, no. I never had friends through dancing school. Mm -hmm. When I was in Oceanside and going to Oceanside Junior High and High School, I had friends, in that I, people that I would see in school and in dancing school. Mm -hmm. Not everybody who went to the same dancing school who, who were dancing in, in school. Mm -hmm. In other words, when, for instance, we put on a, pl a, a musical in, in high school, uh, some of the dancers came from my dancing school and some came from another dancing school. And, but I knew these girls, but we were, were not friends, we just danced. Mm -hmm. um, my friends, I don't want to go this far. Mm -hmm. I, I, let me just ask you a question yeah. about the dance. You, you talked about the importance of dance in your life. Yeah. And you didn't use the word therapeutic, but is that an accurate way to describe what dance provided for you? Well, in retrospect, very therapeutic. So that's exactly where I was going, in retrospect. But when you were dancing as a young person, 
10 years old, 12 years old, 15 years old, did you not recognize then that it was a therapeutic release for you at no, the time? No, I just knew that I wanted to do it and I wanted to do it more. And when we moved to Oceanside, I had a little record player and I would put it on this front step and I would dance on the lawn mm -hmm. to whatever records I had. And I, you know, back then you had the 78s. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I would just dance wherever I could. And that served me very well my whole life, the, my dancing years, because it's enabled me to stay limber mm -hmm. and not gain too much weight and um, be able to garden and body surf and do all the things that I want to do comes from the discipline that, again, in retrospect, the discipline of the dancing mm -hmm. and saying it hurts, but it can't matter so, right now. Whatever so you're doing can't matter. You have to finish. The discipline that you're attaching to what it takes to be a dancer. Yes. Did you apply that same approach to your passion um, related to astrology or gardening? Were you as disciplined in those other areas? Well, that's physical. Okay. The, the astrology, the astrology came from my very early love of mythology. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? Uh, you know, in school. Just they literature teach from you, school, through no, school? they just tell you a little bit about, you know, Roman mythology, Greek mm -hmm. mythology, what mythology is. Uh, I don't know what they teach today, but probably not enough. And when I realized that there was something called astrology that used the same names as the gods and goddesses to apply them to the planets and the planets, uh, why are the planets, the, why is there a Venus goddess and a Venus planet? Mm -hmm. And when I learned astrology, I realized how it all came together, how mythology and astrology all came together. So are you as... That's a mental discipline. Mm -hmm. And that has not one day, not one day in my life have I ever gotten bored, disinterested, or not doing something, either reading, or, and I'm on several astrology forums now. I do free stuff online, um, trying to keep people to the real thing and not go off and on tangents. Mm -hmm. It has been, I, I believe that if you believe in past lives, I had to be an astrologer in a past mm -hmm. life because I, I just can't believe that I have, that's something I, I started learning in 1969. I'm, I still have the absolute same, uh, you know, uh, desire to do. And so you used the word insatiable before. Your, yeah. your thirst, your desire to learn about astrology. And not only astrology. Has never waned. Religion, comparative religion, mm -hmm. philosophy, and, uh, people's, where people come from, uh, his history, um, that show they just had on the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea, did you see that no. on PBS? No. They're trying to save the Dead Sea because it's disappearing and mm -hmm. the Red Sea is getting smaller because after Israel became a state, they started using the water mm -hmm. and how they made desalination. I mean, I, this stuff, I could just go on forever talking mm -hmm. about all of this this stuff that um, you find mostly on PBS about the world, about uh, other people's beliefs and their religions and their ways and and you know how we don't we don't get that here mm -hmm. unless you look for it. Are, are there um, opportunities either online or in person for you to to delve deeper into your passion and to share your strong feelings about what you've learned with others. Does that come through um, what you're doing on the computer or, or there, are there organizations where you come together and sit down no. and share that passion I don't together? have the time. Mm -hmm. I don't have, I have a house and no help. Mm -hmm. I have a garden. I have to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I do the forum every day. I'm on the forum one or two hours every day. And sometimes on my astrology forums, I will veer off into some stuff that I have learned philosophically in order to turn the, you know, people are very narcissistic. 
they when they ask questions about their themselves through their astrology it's always me 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 and they really don't realize how how focused they are very very specifically on themselves and they're not looking out there and they're not asking so how do you questions. how do you handle that when you recognize that they're looking inward and not seeing a more global well, you picture? know it's a skill it's a skill I developed that I didn't know I had mm -hmm. the first 10 years of giving readings it turns out I was an expert at compatibility readings two people are we compatible I mean how did I do that? How could I do it so well? Um, so what, what do you attribute that to? It's just an innate knowledge of, uh, and also all the books I've read, mm -hmm. and psychology, astrology, um, the mixture of two, mythology, um, being compassionate, being mm. sympathetic, wanting to understand how the other person feels. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all wrapped up in, in a very big, it's so big, it's too big. Mm -hmm. Linda, we've been talking for about 15 minutes now, and what I've learned about you in a short amount of time is that you are passionate about things that are meaningful and um, relevant in your life. You are very passionate about those things. Um, have you passed that on to your daughters? You, you mentioned that you have twin girls. Yeah, I tried to get them involved in <laughs> astrology. I gave them... Well, your passion for, for things in life, do they share Oh, that? yeah. Well, they're liberals, mm -hmm. thank God. Um, <laughs> they care you know about other people mm -hmm. um, you know they're they're good they're good girls mm -hmm. you know they've had their problems and their trials but I, I try to be role model mm -hmm. of what it is to survive and to be interested in the world and life so did, did you have role models growing up you said that your relationship with your parents <coughs> terrible I, I broke a cycle, let me put it that way. So, uh, did you have role models growing up? Um, did I have role models? Well, my Aunt Mary, who was married to my mother's brother, was a very lovely, also a Leo. I'm a Leo, she's mm -hmm. a Leo. I didn't know that for a long, long time until I started to ask, when's Aunt Mary's birthday? You know, when's Aunt Frances's birthday? Um, Did it make sense to you when you realized what her birthday was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, it's hard when, when they're relatives. Mm -hmm. But um, And I'm not saying she was a role model. She was just somebody, when you went to her house, she loved seeing you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get that from my mother. You know, when my, when my aunts would see me, when I would go to my father, who his side, my mother's side was Italian, my father's side were Russians. We'd go to New Jersey, and New Jersey's a story I got to tell. Um, and they would, I, I would come in, and they had all boys. They had no girls, mm -hmm. no girls. I don't understand. My my aunt Helen had five boys. <laughs> I would come in, oh, beautiful, you're so beautiful. Come here. My grandmother spoke very few words. Sid, have borscht. <laughs> so you were very much I was at the shocked heart of when I got attention. It was like, yeah. and when I found out that only children were supposed to be spoiled, I said, "Well, if you mean ruined, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but not not never spoiled." <clears throat> so, um, can I tell the New Jersey story? I, I was going to ask you about that. Absolutely, right. go ahead. When. When we lived in Brooklyn, my parents were burglarized. Mm -hmm. All my mother's jewelry, which my father had brought from all over the world because he was in the Merchant Marine, mm -hmm. was stolen the first time, including her engagement ring. Why she wasn't wearing it, I don't know. And when I talked to her about it, she didn't want to talk about it. Where in Brooklyn? On Pacific Street between um, Bond and Nevins. Okay. I used to, at eight years old, I walked from my house to Atlantic Avenue to go to the movies. It was a quarter mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. Saturday. 
an eight-year-old child could go in Brooklyn, go around the corner to Atlantic Avenue, and go to the movies alone and come home. Mm -hmm. Very different now. Very different. Um, anyway, the second time, we, now the first time we were burglarized, I must have been too young to understand what was going on. The second time I came home from school, there's people all around my house. I had no con consciousness of being anxious. I go upstairs, there's people in the apartment, and there's my mother, she's talking to a policeman. And, I, and she said, we were burglarized, again, we were burglarized. And it turns out what the only thing that was left for them to take, because I guess my mother started wearing, was hiding stuff, mm -hmm. um, was our, my, my parents, um, every year we would have a, my mother was very good at budgeting, she was Capricorn too. Um, she had budget envelopes and sh we had a vacation fund and there was $125 and that in the 40s $125 was good because right. you could get a room for five dollars a mm -hmm. night or whatever in a motel and they had taken that so they decided we're gonna leave we're gonna, we have to move and we lived in a, a very very nice little neighborhood beautiful trees outside my landlady was such a doll she was a Greek lady Everything was spotless, perfectly beautiful, clean. People on the second floor had a, um, a um, an economy apartment, and then on the third floor was an, uh, another a m a mother and two daughters, mm -hmm. who I remember their names. I remember all these people's names. It was Mrs. Aridis was my landlady, and when my mother went to the theater or anything, she would leave me with her. So, and. We really hated to leave there, but it was not safe. So we started looking outside New York at at model houses. Well, every time I go into a model house, you know, they it was it had a second story, and they were beautiful, and everything was new and beautiful, and oh, I love it, I love it. And this one place we went to was in New Jersey, but of course my father had to go to the city every day, so it had to be near transportation, mm -hmm. and it had to be near where my mother's relatives, none of them drove, could get on a train and come. So there was a certain parameter as right. to how far they could go. When I think of how close I came <laughs> to living in New Jersey, oh my God, uh, instead I came to paradise. So how did you wind up in Oceanside? One day my mother said, we're moving to Ocean. They must have, while well, I was in school one day, they must have seen a model house in Oceanside driven out. My mother, it's, my father Did they know anybody? Did they know somebody no, who lived here? No, But w my father was in the Merchant Marine. We're ten minute, we were 10 minutes from the sea. Right. I, I mean, that I know that's what did it. He loved the idea that we were near the beach. Mm -hmm. Not only one beach, but several beaches. And that was in 1951? Yeah, and the first thing I knew, we're driving up this dirt road, and on, there's this, there are these mounds of, of houses in different states of, of being built, mm -hmm. just the frames, Right. and it looked like a mountain. You had to walk up, <laughs> and of course today, I mean, when, when Hurricane Sandy came, turns out we were, the, we were the middle, we were the highest house on the block. Mm -hmm. So you were not impacted it was about, by no, the I storm? No, ha I had five, five inches of water in my house. Even though your house was elevated? I have a, we had a 36 inch crawl space and I still had, we still had nine inches of water in our house mm -hmm. for an hour. Then the tide went out, but it didn't, didn't matter. It didn't matter. Well, right. I saved my floors, that's another story. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was all I cared about, saving my, my hardwood, original hardwood floors. Mm -hmm. Um, but that shows you how much fill they had to put in, mm -hmm. because it looked like I was on a mountain. And then when, when we moved in, everything was flat, and it was the same, the roads were in, everything looked, was the same. So that shows you how built up that one street was. Right. Because in back of us, you would walk down this sandy slope, and there was a marsh with a little stream running through it on Joaquina Avenue. And that's why they always get such terrible floods whenever it rains a lot. Anyway, I moved to, I walked to school four. I, grad, I got, got out of school four, I went to- Who was your principal? Do you remember who your principal was? Tom Kilroy. And then I went to um, the 
the junior high, which is on um, Merle Avenue. Merle Avenue, mm -hmm. and then Oceanside High School. And I was always more friendly once I got into high school with the people that were one year younger than me, mm -hmm. whether it was chorus, acting class, whatever, um, drama, um, whatever it was, the people that I gravitated toward were one year younger than me. I was more comfortable and more, I felt that they were more on my, somehow my wavelength. Mm -hmm. uh, than the people, for instance, the people used to hang out in, in this bar in Oceanside on Long Beach Road. Do you remember the name of it? Yeah, but I can't, <laughs> okay. I can't remember it at the second. Johnny Russell's? No, I didn't hang out there. Okay. <laughs> I hung out at the bowling alley. Okay. Because I had met this girl, and she introduced me to this whole life of these people who were outsiders. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I'm one of these people. I'm one of these people. I didn't drink or anything or smoke. I never smoked. But I hung out with them. And I would actually go into the bowling alley and bowl. And I would pay some of these kids because they had no money. I said, come on, I'll buy you a soda and we'll go mm -hmm. bowl a game. And so when the guy who owned the bowling, Oceanside Bowl, would come out and yell, he'd see me and he'd say, are you coming in to have a soda or a bowl? <laughs> and I'd say yes, and then I'd have to go in and, and then he wouldn't sh chase us. As long as we came in and spent a little money, he wouldn't chase us. I get it. <laughs> but that didn't last long mm -hmm. because then I found live rock and roll music. And how did that happen? A very interesting story. A friend of mine who I met through, through, I don't remember how I met Paula, but she lived on Terrell Avenue and she went to Oceanside and she introduced me to this girlfriend of hers named Kuchi. And she went to Rockville Center Schools because Terrell Avenue is on the border. Mm -hmm, right. And Kuchi and I became somehow, I was enthralled with Kuchi. She was the coolest, <laughs> baddest cigarette smoking. <laughs> anyway, Paula had a friend who was having a birthday party and she was gonna have it in the second floor of this bar in Hempstead. The first floor was the bar and we were too young for the bar. Second floor was private, private party. We all went, it was fun. Paula, who was five foot eight, even back then and had, mm -hmm. was very well developed. She's come on, let's go downstairs. I said, really? So we went down, she's come on, let's sit at the bar. I said, okay, bartender came over, what do you have? Now, I had had a scotch and soda at home because my parents didn't believe in, I mean, I had wine mm -hmm. since I was 14 because I was Italian. And how old were you at this point? I was 17. Okay. But Paula was only 15. Uh -huh. But didn't matter because she was built. Mm -hmm. and, I, and we got our drinks. She had a seven and seven, which is always the kids drink. And I had a scotch and soda, so I, I was cool. <coughs> And there's this live band, and there are these people dancing. Now I knew dancing; I danced. I did the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Lindy and whatever. But this was different. This was different. <laughs> I mean, these right. were dancers. And I said, I got to come back here. She said, Well, how are we going to get here? I said, I'll ask my mother to drive us. She said, All right. Well, I can ask my mother once in a while to drive us. Turned out my mother did most of the driving, and then we'd get a ride home from whoever lived closest to Did Ocean your mother Sun. know what was... She drove me there. I had phony proof. <laughs> I had phony proof So that was age. your introduction to rock and roll. And then I followed whatever band I heard about. I would go to Kings Park, Bayshore, any place where there was considered a good band. I, 
I once tried to make a list. When I did my memoir, I made a list of all the places that I went to that I could remember that had bands. Because back then, if you had a bar and a little tiny space where you could get a drum set and a guitar, or two guitars, a bass and a, and a regu regular guitar, you put that in there because the people would come and want to hear the rock, live rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. So there was, it, it was from these tiny little bars that would have them to these big places that were. Who were who some of the, um, <coughs> the, the rock and roll you know, groups that were big at that time? This was before the, the British invasion, obviously. Yeah. But who were some of the, the big names that were you know, attracting the, the kids of the day? Well, there, there were the, oh God, there was a band that played at the Highway Inn. The Highway Inn was a very famous dance hall, I guess you could say. Now, now it's one of those gospel churches. Mm -hmm. But back then it was a, a dance place. And it was gigantic. There were two separate rooms with this big bar in the middle. And I wish I could remember the name of, there was a, this one band would cover all the, the stuff. They would cover all the, the, the top 10 or whatever it was. But then this band came in called the Rhythm Jesters. And they were a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. And I followed them everywhere, everywhere. So much so that one night, I guess it was the winter of 61, there was a snowstorm. And they lived in Babylon, and this was in Hempstead. And nobody was telling us there was a snowstorm out there and the cars all got snowed in. Oh, no. And somebody was shuffling them out, getting them out for $10 each. The band didn't know how, they can't get home. They're in Babylon. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, two of you come to my house. I live in Oceanside. So I called my mother, and the first thing she says is, don't come home. <laughs> I said, I have to come home. They're closing. I said, and not only that, I'm bringing two guys from the <laughs> band with me. And I had two girlfriends. We got stuck on Widener Avenue. We had to walk the rest of the way in, in three-foot snowdrifts. But you made it back to the house. But my mother had made biscuits and bacon and eggs, and we all had bacon and eggs. It, and it took them the rest of the whole day till they found out that the, um, that the ramps to go, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the highway was right. okay, but the ramps were, were shut down. Um, so these guys, they slept in my house one night. And um, that's how much of a, f I was such a fan mm -hmm. of the music because I could dance and dance and dance and then have a drink. A couple of my friends and I were so known that we never paid for drinks. Mm -hmm. We, we just never paid for, I mean, we, I'd, I'd pay for one drink and that was it for the rest of the night. And I always wondered, how, how come they give us drinks? And one guy said, because you look at you, you're, you're a girl and you're a great dancer and you, I don't And you're know. a fan. <laughs> no, because it was the bartenders mm -hmm. that, I was a fan, I wasn't a fan of the bartender, yeah. although I got friendly with, but mm -hmm. I never slept with anybody. I was never a groupie, I never did that. I was mm -hmm. there to dance, mm -hmm. and I could never understand girls who would, went out to these places to meet guys, because although I met guys there, that was not my reason for going. It was the music. Mm -hmm. It was the rock and roll, live music, and when that, when that went away, it was so depressing. I mean, that, I would say from 1959 to about 1979. You could find live music. I mean, you could probably still find it around now, but it was like the golden age 
of Long Island rock and roll, live rock and roll music. What, what did you think about it uh, when the Beatles came on the scene? How, how did you feel about rock and roll? And, and you know who told me about the Beatles? My mother. She said, who are these Beatles? <laughs> so I remember the first time I saw them, it wasn't at my house. My mother had a friend who, who, was, who had, who had a, a daughter who was very, she was much younger than me, but she was very, very into, she had already bought an album and she had seen pictures of them. So we went over there one night that they were going to be on Ed Sullivan and that's where I saw them for the first time. And I liked them. I had loved the Everly Brothers. And it's, I said, it's like had four Everly Brothers. Because mm -hmm. they had that, that harmony and right, the, right. you know. And then, of course, as they evolved as a group, their music got more and more into what I liked, mm -hmm. which was this deep rock, rock and rock went from rock and roll to rock. In a very short amount of time. They evolved very quickly. Yeah, and all of the British groups I, I was crazy about, mm. crazy about them. But do you know, I never saw the Rolling Stones until the mid-90s. And you could still see the Rolling Stones, which <laughs> is amazing to me. <laughs> I mm. saw them, um, I was babysitting for somebody. I had had a very bad um, Epstein-Barr I was two years in bed uh, in the early 90s. And um, after that, I couldn't really work. So I was, I was working, I was getting babysitting gigs three, mm -hmm. three days a week. And um, whatever I made, actually at the end of the month, came out to pretty much what I would have made with taxes taken out and all the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they loved me, and they bought tickets to the Meadowlands to see the Rolling Stones. And um, and I saw George Harrison at one of his um, concerts I'm with Ravi Shankar. It's my favorite. Uh, Neil Young was my favorite. Um, still is. Um, where, where did you see Neil Young? Crosby still. Oh, I saw him everywhere. Uh -huh. But my favorite one, my favorite place to see him, I was in the sixth row at the Palladium. When I don't know if you know the Harvest album. Of course I do. Yeah. Um, he played the songs from Harvest, and mm. I was just like, <laughs> it was Neil Young, he had no group with him. It was mm -hmm. Neil Young and the guitar, Neil Young and so the I harmonica, knew. Neil Young and the piano. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely blown away by this. My friend and I went out after we were, because we were, we were there in the downtown, we went to the Broom Street Bar, and um, I just didn't want to go home. I just did not want to go home. I felt that that was a uh, one of those miraculous nights. It was a moment. That, yeah. A moment. Yeah. I had a similar moment years later with my husband. We went to see Emerson, Lake, and Palmer with a full orchestra, and we had these great seats, not on the floor. And where, where was that? That was at the Coliseum. No, mm -hmm. that was at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. We had had seats on the floor at a previous ELP concert, and I had to get up because my ears started to, I couldn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. I was temporarily yeah. deafened. But this one, we were up on the side a little bit, the great, really great seats, mm -hmm. but not in that. And Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, the full orchestra, ELP Works album, did you ever hear? Oh, yeah. Well, they played everything from, mm -hmm. and I just was absolutely. They were gifted musicians, each of them. It was, you know, <laughs> and then later we would go to these Neil Young concerts and these 15-year-olds would be there and they'd be standing on the seats and I go, you know, I can't see, and I, so you had to stand on your seat and I, mm -hmm. that's when I stopped going mm -hmm. to concerts. W where did you see George Harrison? I saw him in Madison Square Garden, the Ravi Shankar and that whole group when he had made that album. I guess it was or Bangladesh. Yeah, I guess it was right after the Bangladesh concert. Mm -hmm. He, I guess he figured, let's take this on the road. Right. You know, and um, so it was a lot of the stuff they did on the Bangladesh album, which I mm -hmm. have. Um, but the best thing about that night was that, aside from seeing George Harrison in person, was that we had really crappy seats, and we saw there was a box that was empty, 
And we saw, I would say, half, a full half before the people that had that box mm -hmm. came and we had to go back to our seat. <laughs> but we saw at least that. And I said, how could anybody go a whole half really? of a how concert without that? coming, without, you know? Mm -hmm. So the whole music and dancing, see, these are all compartments. I can compartmentalize my life mm -hmm. into these different sections, um, but the dancing and the music, in Brooklyn, I, we had this radio, and of course, when my mother was doing her dishes and everything, we'd listen to soap, soap operas on, but otherwise, I was in the living room sitting cross-legged in front of the, listening to classical music, and then when, when I went to dancing school, I would, she would put the classical music on and I would dance in the living room. Mm -hmm. I would dance whenever I could. I was a dancer. So you, you talk about compartmentalizing yeah. those in areas of interest in your life, but you mentioned before another area of interest for you uh, that maybe you, you can talk about, the movies. What are some of the movies that have resonated with you growing up and, and movies that are out today? In 1990, Somewhere around there, I developed um, symptoms, and I went to my doctor, and he said I had the highest titer of, of Epstein-Barr virus he had ever seen. And I said, well, what do I do to that, for that? He said, nothing, you have to go to bed. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, it was kind of like um, that virus that always went around, it was called the kissing, kissing Mono. virus? Mono. Mono. Mm -hmm. And my daughter had had cytomegalovirus in high school. No, we didn't know anybody else who had it. And she was in bed for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I had to go to bed. And there was, at the end of the street on Long Beach Road, was a video store. And I had a video player. And they would send you coupons, a dollar. I saw every movie in the two years that I had ever seen and all the movies I had never seen up until 19, what did I say, it was 79? It was 19, no, 1990, 1990 to 92. Woody Allen movies, uh, m movies I had seen on television only with commercials, mm -hmm. cut, you know, and when I when my husband and I got back together and I had a little cash, I started buying movies on tape. Mm -hmm. And then when tapes went out, I started buying them on DVD. And now that you can DVR stuff and make your own, right. I do that. So I have a lot of movies and I love them. I love them all. I mean, Woody Allen was my favorite, my favorite writer. Um, but I'm very partial to um, comedy, and I could probably make a list of my 10 or 15 favorite movies. There are, there are movies I absolutely love, but I three. can only see them uh, once a year. Top three movies. Like On the Waterfront. I can only see that maybe every two years. Mm -hmm. My favorite year, which is a comedy, with Peter, Peter O'Toole. O'Toole. Yeah. I could see, I, I saw that, I must have seen that a hundred times. That is a great movie. And I have shared that and given it to people, and anybody who lives in Brooklyn or New York or was around when Sid Caesar, you know, mm -hmm. they all absolutely love that movie because mm -hmm. it was amazing. Um, all the Woody Allen movies, uh, movies that um, from the Fort of Betty Davis, oh my God, when I started seeing movies of hers that I had never seen, I was absolutely dumbstruck. I never realized how great she was, what a great actress she you, was. You know, I just started seeing little clips on Facebook. They, they run clips of, of old movies, and I really started paying closer attention to some of them that they, they're sharing. Um, either on Instagram or Facebook, I forget YouTube where. YouTube also. Sometimes you can get whole movies on. But they, they, I've been seeing clips of Rita Hayworth and Fred Astaire. Oh, yeah. The most amazing 
dance sequences. Oh, yeah. They were in such sync with each other, and they made it look so effortless. It was, it's just amazing. Well, because he was obsessive compulsive. They would. My wife just told me that oh, also. Yeah. I, I never knew that about him, but I guess he had to Ginger be. Ginger Rogers said her feet used to bleed. Uh -huh. Because uh -huh. it would be again and again until it was at, and remember, they could cut and do it again. Mm -hmm. And they could edit it, and still it had to be absolutely perfect for him to okay it. Well, the, the result is, when you're looking at it, it is perfect. It is just they are perfectly in sequence with each other or in sync with each other. And uh, Margaret O'Brien, I saw movies of hers. I looked for the movie The Unfinished Dance, which was about ballet, mm -hmm. for decades, decades. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't, wasn't there. And where did you finally? Amazon. No, you can get anything on Amazon. <laughs> and I bought it. And I, and I said, oh my God, I can't believe I'm watching The Unfinished Dance, because mm -hmm. Danny Thomas was in that. And I remember, he wasn't her uncle, but her, she had no parents, and she, but she loved the ballet, and it was a whole ballet story. There were two ballerinas in it. There, there was a lot of dance. I mean, it was just up my alley. Mm -hmm. And so almost anything is available. Not everything, but almost everything is available. And every, every once in a while, I'll see a movie that I had never seen that I go, oh my God. This is a great movie. Why don't they show it more often? Of all the movies you've seen, which movie have you seen the most? And if you can attach a number to it, how many times have well, you seen that particular movie? Probably my favorite year, because in the first two years I had it, I saw it like every other week, or mm -hmm. sometimes every week. Um, I've seen the majority of one. Did you ever see the majority of one? No with Rosalind Russell. Uh, it was originally a play with Gertrude Berg, a little Jewish old lady, not old lady, she's a middle-aged woman who mm -hmm. had lost her husband, goes with her daughter and son-in-law, he's a diplomat, to Japan to live. And it's the story of how from her hatred of the Japanese because her son died mm -hmm. in World War II, mm -hmm to the end of the movie where she actually might be dating this ja wealthy Japanese businessman mm -hmm. who also lost his wife and who had lost children in the Second World War. And the whole story of on the, on the, in Brooklyn, on the boat, in Japan, back to Brooklyn, very, very fascinating. And I think Roz Russell they, they just wouldn't take Gertrude Berg. They said she just didn't, nobody would come and see it, mm -hmm. even though she had been on Broadway with it for a long time. Um, like they always do, they take, they, they don't let the, the person who did it on Broadway, like for instance, Julie Andrews did, uh, you know. Um, Sound of Music. No. Um, Pygmalion. <laughs> See, I'm uh, just a little bit. Yeah. My brain is going a little bit. Um, my fit, my fair lady. Mm -hmm. They made Audrey Hepburn do it, and they dubbed in her voice with Marnie Nixon. Even though they said her voice, you know, Audrey Hepburn's voice was perfectly good. It just wasn't the voice they needed for the that voice role. They wanted mm -hmm. to have that experience that had been on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Okay, why? Nobody knows why they, they, they just didn't let, anyway. Um, and, and Julie Andrews was still young and cute and everything, but I, they, they just wouldn't take her. Um, what was your question? So actually, I, I want to, uh, the movie that you've seen the most, I think you oh, answered yeah. that. I, I have a, a, a host, I have desk set, which I see a lot. Uh, I can't go to sleep without a movie on. Mm -hmm. I can't, I cannot, this is from when I was a child. When we lived in Brooklyn, my, my room had a door on it, but on the bottom it had that latticed, the metal lattice with the little holes in it, and on the bottom. And so I could hear the radio mm -hmm. 
And every night, my mother would play the radio. She was alone. My father wasn't there. He was in the Merchant Marine. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to the, to the radio. The, I couldn't understand the words, but I could hear. You know, and she would listen to dramas and comedies and whatever. And if it wasn't loud enough, I would say, Mommy, could you louden the radio? Because <laughs> she knew that I, I needed mm -hmm. that radio. And right. my entire life, when I was a teenager, I had uh, this wonderful um, record player that played 33s, and you could put six 33s on it. I would put five or six 33 um, classical music. Mm -hmm. And I would look, because I had insomnia even then. I'm an insomniac. And then um, later it was the TV, and then later it was tapes, and then later it was DVDs. So television today is very different compared to where it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. It is a very different experience for anybody has, who has an interest in what's out there. Do you have, are you, um, aware of the, the hundreds of shows that are available through Netflix and uh, all of the other... I don't have enough, there's not enough hours in the day for me to go. Netflix, I watched Mrs. Maisel's. I had mm. to watch that right. because that went, that went back yeah. to my time. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was So we're waiting brilliant. for season three to come out. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what blew me away at the first season was the the wardrobe, mm -hmm. and I would say, oh my God, I had friends who would wear stuff like that, and their mothers had beautiful, when they were going out, with the diamonds, and my mother didn't do that, but my friends, you know, I had friends who, whose parents went out to the theater and stuff like that, um, and, but no, I watch what I want, so I don't watch any reality shows, there are no reality shows in my life, mm -hmm. I hate, hate reality shows. Mm -hmm. I want to be entertained by people who went to dance class, voice class, acting class, who had to go on auditions, who did the work, who put right. in the sweat. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the people I want to see. So are there any up there that you could share with us that... Well, Aaron Sorkin is my new, my new buddy. Did you see... Well, no. You didn't see no, To Kill a Mockingbird? No, but I have... But I, I didn't even see The West Wing when it was first on. I saw mm -hmm. it on Bravo. It would mm -hmm. be on every morning between eight, uh, 8 and 10. And then, of course, I had to buy it. It cost me 100 and something dollars for the, it was seven seasons. And then, only then did I know that he had a show before that called Sports Night. I bought that. That was a great show. And then when I the forgot that he did that. You're right. Yeah, and mm -hmm. then when the newsroom came on, mm -hmm. I bought all those. Plus, I had the American president. Anything that he has ever had mm -hmm. that is on. And I hope they, I hope they record at least one performance of Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. I hope that I so I can see it. Oh, you're not a, uh, you you don't go into the I city. Would, you to can't see? get tickets. No. You know what tickets cost? I, I know it, it is expensive. Oh my God, yeah. and then that and then. It's either the train and, and cabs, or mm -hmm. the, the, the car and the parking. Yeah, no. Didn't uh, Aaron Sorkin write the screenplay for A Few Good Men? Yes. With Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, yes. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. But that's on all the time. I don't right. need to own that. Right. That's on all the time. Mm -hmm. Stuff that I know I can't get unless I go to the library or whatever. Sometimes I just want, I have so many movies that I want to see all the time, mm -hmm. and um, I, I, this, this stuff, uh, a wonderful, a wonderful movie that um, that I, I, I was shocked that I loved so much. I had to buy it. Was Michael Clayton? George with, Clooney. George Clooney. Great movie. I thought that was, and mm -hmm. and see, I'm really good at this because I think that guy won the. The writing Academy Award for, for that, that movie. Yeah, for, for the screenplay. For the screenplay. Yeah, pretty sure he won that year. Who who wrote that? I don't know, but whoever oh. it was, I said this guy had to. This guy has mm. to win the Academy Award. Hmm. 
So Linda, with the few minutes that we have left uh, for this conversation, and I have to say that I've truly enjoyed the conversation and listening to you. I'm glad I was entertaining. <laughs> entertaining, you've, you've led a very colorful and, and uh, kind of life that really lends itself to the kinds of stories that others will want to hear about. So I thank you for, much, for much, being a part of much this. Much more. <laughs> There's much more. Oh, God. So I'm going to make, this is going to be a challenge for you then. In the few minutes that we have, I know that you talked about um, writing a memoir. So in those few minutes, can you tell us a little bit about how you came about writing the memoir? And what is it from your writing experience, what is it that you can share with us in these last few minutes together? Years ago, um, see, I, there is such a gigantic story that I haven't even started to go into. <laughs> but years ago, I decided I was going to write a novel. And I was going to fictionalize some of the things that had happened to me at a certain period of my life that were obsessive, obsessing me and that were important to me and that stayed with me and shaped my my tastes and my life in so many ways that I didn't even know how to do it. So I took a couple of years and I wrote this novel, which of course has never been published. Mm -hmm. In fact, the one completed, completed copy got flooded. Oh. I have loads of partials Six years so, ago during this, this yeah. the superstorm? I didn't realize it was in a closet downstairs. It was in uh, a metal box, but it was it didn't it matter. It hadn't been transcribed or, or set to put in a Word file Most, somewhere? No, no, because it was on a typewriter. Mm -hmm. I originally typed it on a typewriter, and I figured at some point, if I ever met an editor from a publishing house, I would mention that I would do all the work to get it all together to redo it and I would mm -hmm. do it on a computer. Or I'd have somebody work with me and they could type part of it and I could type part of it. Anyway, uh, it was, my children don't know how tragic that was for me to mm -hmm. lose that whole copy. Uh, as I said, I have boxes of partials, mm -hmm. partial parts of it. But um, I fictionalized my life in this, in this book. And I felt that I had done some odd things in my life that I wanted my children to understand me. <coughs> and what had motivated me throughout the years, what had brought me to marry their father, who was totally wrong for me, um, the decisions I had made afterward, um, my relationship with my mother and father, but I preceded that by beginning saying my life is not a tragedy. So whatever I tell you, I want you to know I've survived it all. Mm -hmm. And that I have an inner strength that I don't know where it comes from. Well, I could explain it to you astrologically, but, <laughs> but I can't explain it any other way. How would you explain it astrologically? I, I couldn't begin to tell you because you would have to know what I was talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, the planets in our solar system form a pattern in, in this hypothetical chart that we use. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it is a, a schematic, let's say, of who you are. Mm -hmm. And therefore it can be translated or delineated. Um, and as I grew and understood astrology more and my chart more, I understood that I was actually fulfilling all of, even the kinds of jobs I have. I have uh, the planet Mars is in Virgo, which is humility, the humble planet. And all my jobs have been, have been uh, jobs of service. Mm -hmm. uh, hairdressing for 20 years. Um, when I did the babysitting and, and doing astrology at the same time, one was a physical, humble thing, another was an intellectual thing. Um, working in the garden, very humbling. You get dirty. You don't care about your pain. You make something beautiful, and then you take pictures of it. You mm -hmm. take photos of it. 
Um, all of the things that I did, and I wanted my children to understand where it came from and the things I had gone through, because all children think that what they're going through, nobody ever went through before. Mm -hmm. That's what children do. That's how they think. So I found it was almost a never-ending story. And not because I'm still alive, because nothing happens now to me. I mean, it's like I'm a, I'm a reactor, so something would have to happen like this, mm -hmm. you know, what right. we're doing today, right. for me to do this. Um, when I did the memoir, I don't know what motivated me at that, at that moment in time, mm -hmm. probably a transit, you know, it was just the time I was supposed to do that, or I was bored, or it was cold and snowy and I couldn't go outside. So the memoir is completed? Pretty much. Is it in a safe place? It is in a safe place. All right, good. It is in a safe place. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that my children would ever listen to all of that rambling, not ramblings, I try to make it entertaining also. And I talk about all of my relatives, you see, in, in the memoir, I talk about So your all memoir my is something that you recorded or that you wrote, or you wrote recorded. first and then no, read it? No, on tape, mm -hmm. all on tape. And how many hours of tape is it? Oh, I don't know, a lot. Two hours, no, four hours? No, more like 12 hours, yeah. Because well, that, I that's a gift though that they will have if they even care, you know, if they even bother with it. I know they love me, and um, but um, how curious they are about what, see, I, when, when I give someone a reading, I want to know that. I feel that everybody's life is a mystery. Mm -hmm. And if I can make sense of it, especially to the person who's confused or mystified, mm -hmm. Then, and they go, I feel better now. I understand more about myself, about this person or whatever, my mother or my boyfriend or my ex-husband. I go, well, that's it. I, I'm going to make you think and understand that um, if you have guilt or anger or whatever, you gotta let it go because mm -hmm. it happened, it's done. And so, you know, that's, I feel that I'm a source, a source of information. Mm -hmm. I have a tremendous amount of information in my brain about a lot of different things. Well, I, I think it, it is something that would be a gift for them, for their family, for their kids, their kids' kids. I mean, it's there as um, a resource, something they can go to whenever they want to. Hopefully the way that they will you know, approach this conversation we're having today. It's there for them to listen to whenever they want to or need to. It's there. But you know what they would say if they heard this? She left out all the men. Well, that's going to have to be for another time. <laughs> Can it be another time? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that we could probably find another time to do this. But we remember when we started, we said that this is going to go by very quickly. And this, uh, it has flown for me. Yeah. And I, I'm hoping that you feel the same way. And that's a good thing. It means that we've really been engaged and in, 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 uh, listening uh, to what, you know. You know how people say. say sometimes that the past seems more real than the present? Yeah. The past mm -hmm. is incredibly real to me. I can, mm -hmm. I found that, that not everybody feels that way when I tried to get in touch with some people from my past, girlfriends. Took a lot of time trying to find out where they lived and their phone numbers or their addresses and wrote letters and stuff. They didn't remember it like I did, or they weren't in, they weren't um, interested mm -hmm. that much about those times, which was so important to me. And so they, you know, psychiatrists like to say that you're not a product of every single um, event that ever happened to you. That you're more than that, and of course, mm -hmm. I know you're more than that. Mm -hmm. But you are also a product of every I, single I event that ever happened to you because you build on it. It's, right. like, it's like a pyramid. Mm -hmm. Well, with about a minute to go, how, how would you like to close the conversation? This Life Story episode featuring you, Linda Harris, what, what is it that you would like to say in closing? I have even, I, I have <laughs> a thousand and one stories. I'm like Shahrazad. <laughs> 
I could continue and some of them you'd be interested in hearing and some of them would be funny and some of them would be not so funny. Um, I've lost people out of my life starting when I was very young and um, those, those experience also. Exper when I experience loss, it's forever. Mm -hmm. my, my experience of loss is total when I, when I lose something. And that whole subject is a whole other subject. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe there will be a, an episode two maybe with Linda can. Harrison. So you would have to think about how you would want to go about that. Right. Because talking about boyfriends and loss, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but very important. It is. It's I tried to keep this kind of objective. Well, thank you for being a part of And uh, I wasn't going to do that. I was going to make it really subjective. Mm -hmm. But you kept me objective. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for, for sharing with us. Um, I appreciate that. This, is, this has been Tom Capone with Linda Harris. And this is Life Stories. That is part of the podcast called Spoilers Alerts. Thank you, Linda. You're very, very welcome. I'm glad I did this.